We have been going through and looking at the story of the Exodus from, from Egypt. And we've come now to the ten so-called plagues that God brought on Egypt and in particular on Pharaoh as he refused to listen to God and let his people go. We're taking these about two plagues at a time so that we don't get bogged down in them. And I, I want to remind us that these plagues are easy to read and think about, um, think about the judgment of God. Think about his wrath. And surely these plagues are about that, but they're not just about that. In fact, if you are in the people, one of God's people, we'll see today that that you have been separated out from that judgment. There is a warning here, but it's not the primary thing. In, in fact, the primary thing is something different, but I want to explain that to you uh, after we read the text. So, so people of God and those who are here visiting, hear this word. We'll read about the, uh, the third plague and the fourth plague, about 16 verses in total, starting with verse 16 as well. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they shall stand, on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right for us to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes... Will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness 
and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pray with me. Father, now may my words and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable sacrifices offered to you. Will you make them useful for us? And even though they be an abomination to others, will you feed us from these words and these acts? In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about your house, but our house has had an infestation of flies this week. I've noticed that businesses around here seems an appropriate text here to... Uh, to to address in San Diego. But I think for most of us, we don't really appreciate what insects can do in a community, what kind of havoc they can wreak. I remember one time hiking in Yosemite and coming to this valley near a, a pool and just being inundated by mosquitoes in a way that I've never been swarmed around before. And we just don't experience that very often. I'll tell you this, there's no false god in Egypt that I'm aware of that is depicted as a gnat or as a fly, if you remember last week, the Nile River and uh, the frogs are both representations of gods in Egypt. However, that the gnats came out of the dust of the earth is speaking to yet another place where the Egyptians were tempted to look to find fulfillment and to find Um, an answer to their problems and that was the land itself the dust of the earth and so again God is coming in to speak into the the places in the Egyptians lives where false gods existed where they were tempted to idol worship where we can even relate and say we're tempted to idol worship but as I said before the primary purpose of the The study of these plagues for us as believers in Jesus is not a warning against false idolatry. You hear that? The primary purpose is not a warning against false or idolatry, worship of false gods. All of these stories about how God rescued his people out of Egypt are summarized in this one one verse, one sentence in the Hebrew text. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 20. 
Exodus chapter 20 is where God begins to give the Israelites his more specific commandments. And you know the Ten Commandments, or at least you're familiar with them, and you may know that right after that he goes on to expand on the Ten Commandments and the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, for that matter, and uh, really part of Numbers and Deuteronomy are going into more and more detail on God's commandments. But the first 20 chapters of Exodus... Oh, if it's not one person, it's another, isn't it? (laughs) The first 20 chapters, 19 chapters of the book of Exodus are summarized by this one sentence. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out out of the house of slavery, And then he begins his commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He goes on. A lot of people approach religion as a set of rules that need to be followed in order to receive God's blessing. In order to experience the good life. In fact, Almost every religion that is out there, apart from Christianity, can be characterized by, if you do these things, you will get this. These are the rules. You may not like the rules, but if you follow them, then this will happen. I like to call this common religion. In fact, there are a lot of places in the church, and I think most of us have experienced this, that the the church looks very much like this too. That you have the expectation that before you can go into the church, you need to get your act together. You need to behave before you can belong. But here's how the message, the story of the God Yahweh, the Christian religion, the the Jewish heritage from which the Christian religion comes is different from that. Here's what true religion is. True religion says, because God did this for you, now you can do this. Because God has done this. Now you are able to do these things. And so for the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, God is doing those things. He's saying, look, I'm going to rescue you from your deepest, darkest, most troubled spot. I know where you are. You may be forgotten by the rest of society, but I know where you're living and I know your deepest needs and I'm going to come and find you. Not only that, I'm going to show myself as powerful over the most powerful earthly force imaginable at the time. 
powerful if you want to compare it to something over the U.S. military. Powerful over Pharaoh's armies and his organizational structure by which the Israelites were held slaves. I know you. I know your needs, and I will come after you. In grammatical terms, this is called the indicative, which enables the imperative. The imperative being the commandments, the things we should do. You should do this. The indicative being the reason why we should do this. We all have kids. Excuse me. Some of us have kids. All of us, most of us have been around people with kids. All of us have been children. We all know that when we tell our kids to do something, a frequent question is, why? And sometimes we just give them the answer because, and sometimes God just gives us the answer because I said so as well. But by and large, in the whole of Scripture, in the whole of God's redeeming story, God does not leave us without a reason why. In fact, he gives us the reason why before he tells us what to do. He doesn't give us a what without giving us the why. And the first 19 chapters of Exodus are about the why. Now this is an interesting way of seeing the plagues, isn't it? That the plagues aren't primarily for us as believers an exercise in understanding God's judgment, but an exercise in understanding the why we should follow him and do what he commands. The indicative, the reason why. So let's look at these two plagues. First, we have an inundation of gnats. It says, come out of the dust of the earth. Of course, we understand that not every speck of dust was turned into a gnat, but this is meant to communicate to us the concept of number. This is the way God communicates with number. How many children did God say Abraham would have? A countless number of children, as many as the stars in the sky and as the dust of the earth. And so there were gnats, or perhaps it was fleas. The, the, uh, the Israelites weren't too concerned with their, um, their study of insects. They are very specific when it comes to the, the, the word on what this is. This could be fleas or a number of other small insects. I think there's a good argument to be made that it's even fleas because it says that they came onto the people and the animals. Whatever it is, you have this massive inundation of insects. Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. First, there's no warning offered for this plague, this third plague. So far, Moses has gone to Pharaoh and given him warning, and then Pharaoh doesn't do something, and then the, the plague comes. But here, there's no warning. Immediately, the fleas come, and I think that the explanation is this, and that is Pharaoh, after the second plague, when he asked Moses to pray to God, and Moses prayed to God, and he took away the frogs, Pharaoh breaks his word, and immediately God sends another plague of gnats. This sets up a pattern. In fact, there are groups of three in each of these plagues, a pattern 
where Pharaoh breaks a promise, particularly in the second in the second of the three groups of three, and then immediately something else comes on. The other thing I want you to to realize here with this this third plague is that insects are not insignificant. It may seem like a fairly docile kind of plague. I mean, gnats don't really get at you that much. Fleas are a little bit more annoying. But who who dies from a lot of gnats around you? But I want you to think of insects in a little bit different way. In fact, did you know that more people have died from insect bites than any other animal around in the history of the world? saw an article on this not long ago in National Geographic that listed out the most deadly creatures on earth. And at the top of the list, you know what it is? It's a mosquito. It's a mosquito. Insects can be awful. They can wreak havoc. Now, oftentimes, it takes longer to die from an insect bite than from a, a lion attack. But still, insects can be particularly nasty. And the other thing that you need to see from these gnats and in the flies is that where Pharaoh's magicians were able to bring the frogs out of the water, where the magicians were able to turn water into blood, where the magicians were even able to turn their staff into snakes, here we find the magicians helpless. Pharaoh turned to the magicians, and what did they say? I said, you got us here. This is the finger of Elohim, not Yahweh, not the proper name for God, but this is the finger of perhaps the gods, or maybe they're actually recognizing that this is the finger of the God of Moses and Aaron. That's the Nats, fairly brief intended to communicate that there was quick and swift judgment. And then we find this fourth plague, and again, the cycle begins. And Moses goes to Pharaoh. It says, in the morning. In the morning goes to Pharaoh as Pharaoh had gone down to the, to the river Nile, down to the water. Now Pharaoh, the Pharaohs did not bathe in the Nile as many people do. And so Pharaoh was not going down to bathe uh, perhaps Pharaoh was going down in some type of ritual worship practice in the morning. It's tough to say exactly what's going on here. But Moses, as he does in each of the beginning of these three cycles, first plague, the fourth plague, and again the seventh plague, goes to meet Pharaoh in the morning. And he says again, let my people go. Pharaoh again seems to offer resistance, but this time the plague is a little bit different. This time, this time God has told Moses, this plague will not affect the Israelites. If you're inclined to believe that these are just sort of natural events that God made happen in the, in the land 
around certain seasons when the river uh, looks red or when frogs become increase in population or flies or whatever else. This part of it, verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell should put to rest any notion that there is any possibility that the scriptures could be right and these are natural causes. This is a miraculous separating out of the people. The people of God were free from flies and the people of Egypt experienced this great plague. God was showing Pharaoh and everyone in Egypt, I care for this group of people who are slaves. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh does nothing at first. The plague comes. And then Pharaoh calls to Moses and Aaron, and he offers them a compromise. Verse 25, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. You've asked for a three-day journey out in the wilderness, but I don't want to let you do that, but I will let you all sacrifice within the land. There's a question that arises here. A question on how Moses response to this compromise offer and then how we as believers in Christ or those who are considering the claims of Christ considering the the claims of of the God who rescued these people should apply that in our lives I mean where should we like Moses not make compromises and are there other places where we, we should make some type of compromise. How are we to understand it? Moses immediately recognizes that there's a problem in this plan. Now, it's possible that Pharaoh wanted to just keep an eye on the people. He wanted the people still within his realm of power, not outside of his realm of control. And so he wanted to be able to watch over them with his army and make sure no funny business happened. Make sure they didn't leave the land. It's also possible that Pharaoh had some type of, might call it politically motivated, plan up his sleeve here. I, I think this is more likely. I mean, think about this for a second. The people of the land surely are starting to hear about these interactions between Moses and Pharaoh. The people of the land realize that Pharaoh has the power to keep these plagues from happening. The, the people of the land are recognizing, the Egyptians I mean, are recognizing that Pharaoh is at least partially to blame in this whole deal. And so now Pharaoh has a little plan I'm going to let the people of Israel do their worship next to their neighbors so that their neighbors start to blame the people of Israel for these problems. It's an expedient 
decision made by all kinds of world leaders. It happens all the time. In fact, you can even make a case that Constantine, that great Roman emperor who brought Christianity into the land, was simply making a similar type of expedient decision where he, he recognized that a lot of people were becoming Christians and he needed them on his side. I don't know. There's some good evidence for that. I think there's even better evidence that Pharaoh had a plan here, and Moses identifies his plan right away. He says, you can't trick me here. I know, as soon as we start to offer these sacrifices, the people of Egypt are going to recognize that we are doing something different from what they're used to, different from their religion, and they will come and they will stone us at best, stone a few of us at best, at worst, be extremely abusive to us. No, you need to let us go three days sacrifice. Three days away, three days into the wilderness, apart from the people of Egypt, so there is no confusion. I will not compromise with you. I will not give anything. This is what God has told me to do, and I will do it. Now listen, there are many places in life where this is the approach that we need to take. God has said it. And that's why we do it. He's given us, furthermore, a reason why we should do it. He's given us the why we should do it. And we just need to do it. But I don't think that's the end of the story here. I mean, surely we should never compromise in our own lives with the convictions that we have that God has said in his word through his messengers, through the preaching of his word, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the leading of the word, that you should never go against that conscience. But there are many places in life where we are forced to make decisions, where we find ourselves in a group of people and we have to, we have to compromise. I know you can think of places. If you can't, I want you to think about places at work where you work for somebody, who you're constantly having to make a decision, should I do this? It seems to go against something that I don't want to do. I think that this would be done better this way. Or this seems to be uh, potentially raising up problems. It's going to potentially cause other problems. Or, or sometimes there are things that are just against God's word. When you're asked to lie or to cheat or to steal. How do we make these decisions? Moses' example is something of an anomaly in Scripture. More often in Scripture, we find examples like Daniel. Daniel, who's taken captive when the, Assyrian, when the Babylonian army conquers Jerusalem and is taken back to Babylon, and Daniel is trained for three years alongside of other men to serve in the king's court of the man who conquered his city and killed many of his people. How many difficult situations would he have been faced with every day? We know that he didn't compromise on some things. He chose to not eat food that was offered to idols in Babylon. How many other things would we see him faced with making decisions to serve a king who was abusive? who was outright ruthless 
in his conquering of people and taking them captive. We see the same type of thing when the the leaders in Jerusalem ask Jesus a question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar knowing well and good that Caesar was responsible for repressive forms of government, for maintaining a so-called peace, the Pax Romana, that was enforced by a lot of bloodshed, not the least of which included Jesus, our Lord, who was crucified as an insurrectionist. Many of us are placed in these types of situations. Now, I don't think that we experience this anywhere near the level that most people in history have experienced the kind of compromising situations that they would have been forced to endure. The type that slaves, through much of human history, would have had to wrestle with when they were being instructed to do things by their masters. The type of difficulty that laborers with little power over their employers for the longest time had to make decisions or to influence decisions. In fact, these things are very foreign to us. We sit in a lap of luxury where oftentimes we can just walk out on a job and find another job, but that's not been the case for most people in history. And so this question arises, can we sit back here in the comfort of our chair and just say, be like Moses and never compromise? And the clear answer is no. I face this all the time in church meetings. When our presbytery, who's a group of pastors and elders of the church, get together and we disagree about even things that God says, and we have to make decisions and still work together. We face this in our family lives, where one spouse wants one thing and another spouse wants another thing, and it seems like that we're at odds, and so we have to compromise. How do we make these decisions? I wish I could give you an easy answer here. The answer is difficult. The answer requires that we have wisdom. The answer requires that we search out the scriptures and understand why Jesus would say pay taxes to Caesar, saying that Caesar may have control over one realm, but he does not have power ultimately over your life. Even if you are a slave, your master may have power even to kill you, but he does not have power over your eternal soul. In your marriage, you have to make decisions together. In the church, you have to make decisions together and agree on things so that you can move forward. You can make decisions. You can, you can uh, accomplish things. The answer is that oftentimes, oftentimes God is speaking to us, not only by the voice that we hear in our own head and the way that the Holy Spirit seems to be leading us and the way that we are reading the scripture. The answer oftentimes comes in the counsel we have with other people and in being willing to listen to other people because they may have an insight into God's word, a leading by the Holy Spirit that may be something we need to follow. We still need to have the wisdom of being able to go back to the word and say, might this be possible? 
Might this be something that I've misunderstood in the word? Might this be something that God is teaching me and leading me? And be able to understand the difference between the things that are very clear in the word and the things that are left up to human decisions oftentimes. Be willing to work together as the body of Christ. Humbly recognizing that God is in control, that Jesus is our king, that he is infallible and that we are not. Let me close with this. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Quite literally, this is translated, but Pharaoh made his heart heavy. Not Pharaoh's heart was heavy. Not that Pharaoh's heart was hard, but Pharaoh made his heart heavy. Do you know what this means? I I didn't. I had to research this a little bit. In the Egyptian culture, it was believed that when a person died, he went to judgment in some form of an underworld. And a person's heart, a person's heart was, it was taken and put on a scale, and on one side of the scale was his heart, and on the other side of the scale was a feather. The heart was the very essence of the person, and the scales weighed the truth. The feather represented truth and righteousness. Heaviness represented misdeeds, unjust things. If the heart was pure, the feather weighed more than the heart. The Egyptian would go on to the afterlife. If the heart was heavier than the feather, he was condemned and thrown, thrown to something that would devour and eat his whole being. What God is doing here is using Pharaoh's own language, the Egyptians' own language, to say that Pharaoh was choosing condemnation. That Pharaoh, through his misdeeds, was choosing condemnation. That Pharaoh had even an opportunity to repent. And yet, by his own choosing, hardened his own heart. As we've said before, this is, for us, a contradiction from the concept that God is sovereign over all these things. And even that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet, the same... These two things that are seemingly contradictory are true at the same time. And in this, we have a warning. That's an important warning. Not to make our hearts heavy. Not to harden our hearts when we hear the preaching of the word, when we hear the gospel of truth, when we hear the commandments of God the imperatives. 
because God has given us the indicatives. When we hear what we should do, remember the plagues, because in the plagues we remember why we should do them. And the why is that God has rescued us, not just from slavery to the Egyptian king, but from all of our sins. He's given us a reason and a warning and his instructions. All these things work together in a beautiful harmony. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your power, for your sovereign control over all things, for your warnings. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your wise For the reasons you give us to love you because you have first loved us, will you help us to do that in all of our life? In Jesus' name, amen.